a martini and rich Linkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Welcome Radio. in. Happy New Year. Legal Face Off here. WGN Radio. WGNRadio.com. It's Legal Face Off. Rich Linkoff, Tina Martini. Are we still recovering from the New Year's festivities? The Barbara Walters year, right? 2020. <laughs> If Welcome I had to, to the twenty anymore. Yeah. Does she talk like that? <laughs> Apparently, oh, like Barbara Walter from a different country. Yeah. Uh, plenty to get to per usual. We'll have a SCOTUS panel again here on LFO. We'll talk about marriage story and how that actually depicts family law. If they did it right or if they did it wrong, and then the new twenty twenty laws in the state of Illinois. Plus the grab bag at the end of the show. But we kick things off with our two-headed panel today, rejoining us on Legal Faceoff. She's been on multiple times. Carolyn Shapiro, Associate Professor of Law at Chicago-Kent College of Law. Professor, welcome back. Thanks so much. Also joining us from California, the esteemed dean at Berkeley Law, University of California, Erwin Chemerinsky. Dean, welcome to the program. Such a pleasure to be with you. So Dean Chemerinsky and Professor Shapiro... Uh, Let's kick things off by talking about your thoughts on the amicus brief filed by 200 members of Congress last week, urging the Supreme Court to reconsider the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion nationwide. Well, it's in some ways not surprising that there would be uh, that that kind of brief would be filed. There are certainly members of Congress and other legislators around the country who very much want to make abortion uh, completely illegal and inaccessible uh, to, to all women. So um, they see Roe v. Wade as what the thing that's standing in their way. So in that sense, uh, it, it's not surprising. I personally, I would, I'm skeptical that the court will take them up on that invitation. I think the Chief Justice, however distasteful he might find Roe versus Wade, is more likely to want to chip away at it uh, than overrule it outright. Dean, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with Professor Shapiro. I think there are five justices on the current court who allow much more government regulation of abortion. I think there may be five votes to either effectively or explicitly overrule Roe. But I don't think it's going to happen this term that the Supreme Court will explicitly overrule Roe versus Wade. I do think that this brief is a political statement by these conservative members of Congress that they want the court to end Roe versus Wade in the protection of abortion rights. Let's turn to impeachment. Um, You know, that's not been in the news the last couple of days, given the events of the Middle East. But what, by all accounts, we will likely see a trial in the Senate uh, in January, maybe February. Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, will preside over that trial. Uh, Dean, how do you expect the Chief Justice to handle uh, his role in a Senate impeachment trial? William Rehnquist presided over the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton, and he later remarked, he did very little, but did it very well. (laughs) My guess is John Roberts is going to follow that model. He's going to try to appear that he's always fair and impartial, but the reality is this is a decision that's going to be made by the senators. The reality is it takes a two-thirds vote to remove Donald Trump, and everyone knows going in that's not going to happen. Uh, Professor Shapiro, you clerked for Justice Breyer of the Supreme Court. Do you think that we'll see a trial in January? Of course, the Republicans have stated that because the House has not actually presented the articles yet, that it means that President Trump has not been impeached. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I think it's a little bit silly to claim he hasn't been impeached uh, when, in fact, The vote was clear, uh, and and a clear majority voted to impeach him. The technicalities of presenting the articles to the Senate, um, it's not clear to me that there's really a constitutional requirement that the House do that. Um, But what's really going on is a political tug of war between uh, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, Speaker of the House and and, uh, Majority Leader of the Senate, over whether or not the there is going to be a a trial that's actually meaningful, that's actually going to allow for the development of evidence and and facts. Uh, There are some witnesses who, such as John Bolton just today, said he would, in fact, testify if subpoenaed by the Senate, um, which is something he refused to do in the House. So there is evidence that could be developed in the trial in the Senate that that hasn't yet come out. And that's really what this debate is about. 
So let's turn now to three of the most important cases that are going to be on the Supreme Court's 2020 docket. Um, let's look at first the Second Amendment. In December, the court held arguments on its first Second Amendment case in almost a decade, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York. Dean Shimarinsky, can you please explain why they took this case and what it's about? From 1791, when the Second Amendment was adopted, until 2008, the Supreme Court never struck down any law regulating guns as violating the Second Amendment. But then in District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008, the court struck down a 35-year-old D.C. ordinance that for the ownership and possession of handguns. Justice Scalia wrote for the court, it was 5-4, to four, and he said there's a right to have guns in the home for the sake of security. But is there a right to have guns outside the home? When can there be restrictions on guns outside the home? How should courts even approach restrictions on guns in terms of their constitutional analysis? I think the court took this case so as to clarify all of that. And I think there's also five conservative justices who want to expand gun rights. But what makes this complicated is, subsequent to the Court of Appeals decision, New York City repealed this ordinance. New York State adopted a law prohibiting such restrictions on guns. And so the argument is, it's now moot. It's a challenge to a law that no longer exists. Professor Shapiro, how do you think they will ultimately rule in this case? Well, I think they should rule that they don't have jurisdiction because it's moot for the reasons that Dean Chemerinsky just said. Um, I think that there are at least some justices who will want very badly to, to say some things about the expansion of gun rights in, in favor of the expansion of gun rights. I don't know that there will be five such justices. It's worth adding that the, that the law itself that, that was originally challenged even though it's no longer on the books, was a pretty extreme law. It doesn't, striking down that law wouldn't necessarily require striking down very many other laws that are out there regulating the ability of people to carry guns outside the home. Uh, This was was a law that that basically prohibited any uh, movement of of a firearm outside the home. So it is, um, it was extreme, it's no longer good law. It's no longer on the books. It really can't meaningfully ever be reenacted. So what the court should do is say they don't have jurisdiction. Professor Shapiro, another case um, that will be decided in the coming year is involving Trump's taxes, of course. It's actually three cases mm-hmm. that were granted review. Trump versus Nance, Trump versus Mazars, and Trump versus Deutsche Bank. All three, of course, involve President Trump's attempts to overturn the federal appellate court's decisions in New York and Washington, rejecting the president's arguments to shield financial records from law enforcement and congressional investigations. How do you think the court will view this relatively unique legal argument? Well, I I think it's actually going to be, it's difficult to predict, but I think that And I think that the two cases could come out differently, the two types of cases, the cases involving Congress versus the case involving the prosecutor uh, in in New York who is seeking these records. But in both, especially with respect to the state prosecutor, the president has taken an extraordinarily aggressive position, which is that he cannot be, he and his organizations cannot even be investigated for criminal wrongdoing while he's in office. Uh, and even by a, a state prosecutor who is not part of the federal executive branch, and therefore all of the concerns people have about separation of powers when the, it's the Department of Justice investigating simply don't apply. So I think that the court is quite likely, I think, to say that the that that particular subpoena should be enforced. Uh, it might put some language or some restrictions on the scope of such subpoenas in general. One could imagine a situation which, you know, prosecutors all over the country started filing subpoenas in a, in a way that appears to be harassing. That's not what's going on here. So there, while there might be some limiting language, they, the court should, in my view, absolutely enforce that subpoena. The congressional subpoenas are slightly harder, in part because the the there the at least theoretically the house has its own remedy for failure to comply and that's impeachment uh and in addition 
Uh, but, but in addition, in order to strike down those subpoenas, the Supreme Court would have to second-guess con- Congress's statement that it has a legislative purpose in seeking this information. And that's not the kind of second-guessing that the court generally likes to do with respect to Congress. Dean Shimerinsky, the Trump administration has canceled the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program, an action that puts more than 700,000 so-called dreamers at risk of deportation. Every lower court to consider President Trump's action, regardless of whether the judge was appointed by a Democrat or a Republican, has ruled against the administration and held that there was no basis for rescinding DACA. But the Supreme Court has a conservative majority. What did we learn from oral arguments on November 12th about how the court is likely to rule on this case? I should disclose that I'm one of the co-counsel on behalf of the DACA recipients who have been involved in the case since the federal district court level. I think that the oral argument indicated that there may very well be five justices to come down on the side of President Trump. I think that the question is whether the court will adhere to the principle that administrative actions require an articulated, legitimate reason. What every lower court said was President Trump didn't have a legitimate reason for rescinding DACA, but will the five conservative justices, or even one of them, adhere to that? Really quick prediction. Uh, I know this is hard, but do you think we'll see any openings in the Supreme Court in 2020? No, absolutely not. Dean? I don't know that we can say. I don't think any of the justices are going to choose to leave in 2020. On the other hand, we know that there are justices who are elderly, and a lot's going to depend on health issues that none of us can possibly predict. Great SCOTUS panel per usual, Carolyn Shapiro, Associate Professor of Law, Chicago Kent College of Law, and the esteemed Dean at Berkeley Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, University of California. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com. Welcome back to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. Rich and Tina are here and joining us on the show for the first time in 2020, but not the first time on this program. She's Amanda Vinicky, Chicago Tonight, WTTW-TV. We were trying to figure out, Amanda, how many times is this on the show? You know, when you're having fun, you don't count. What a cop-out that is. (laughs) What a cop-out. I think it's at least five, Rich, but what do I Almost jacket time, right? Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll definitely have a pin That's arranged right. for next time. I'll wear it. So, Amanda, a lot of new laws to cover. Let's get right at it. 20 in 2020. But we're only going to cover a few of them because there are so many interesting ones in Illinois. We're going to talk about the rideshare tax that is the bane of many people's existence right now because just another uh, cost to get around Chicago, right? Yeah. So, this is, we have about 250 new statewide laws that took effect. The rideshare or congestion tax is what Mayor Lori Lightfoot's office calls it. That's a city one. And so if you aren't living in Chicago or not visiting the city, you're not going to have to worry about it. But that does take effect as of the 6th. So it is unlike the rest where it was, you know, once the clock struck midnight and we entered the new decade. 
everybody actually had almost a week's reprieve from this one. And that does, of course, increase really the share. It's less a tax, more like almost a fee that is tacked on, because no matter how much you spend, that's what it is going to be, particularly the increase hits if you are taking a car, a rideshare, a Lyft and Uber by yourself, and particularly if you are going into the downtown area, where really that's what, the again, the Lightfoot administration says is the goal is to try to make it stop being so darn congested. Not sure that how much this will actually help, but the thought is if you're a sick of paying it, then maybe you're going to take a pool where you're going to catch a little bit of a break or ride some uh, a CTA train or something or hop on a bus. But right now it means that you're going to be increased every time you hop into an Uber or a Lyft. Citywide, you're going to go from paying $0.72 cents to $1.25, so more than $0.50 cents extra. And if you're going into that downtown zone, the tax is now um, going to be – so, yeah, that's going to go up to $1.75. Yeah, those and the increase in the parking tax in the city, I think, are an effort progressively by the mayor to try to make it – you know, make less cars on the road and make, as you said, incentivize people to share rides into the uh, city's core. Let's move on to uh, some DCF reforms that took effect statewide here uh, at the beginning of the year. A lot of this is in the wake of some high-profile cases we saw in 2019, um, you know, some, including some tragic cases that we covered here on our show. Yeah, it, we actually just got a report from the Inspector General who covers the Department of Children and Family Services, and there was an increase in the number of cases that resulted in childhood deaths. So obviously that is horrific. It's sad. It's awful. 123 children in the 2019 fiscal year. And so in the wake of that, we do have some changes. I, I think some of this is going to be, you know, in practice and perhaps in hiring new caseworkers and really holding accountable the director of that agency where there's been a lot of rotation. But there are, as you noted, a kind of a really a trio of laws that affect this. And that requires, for example, um, just more reporting of whatever rep- whenever there is a report of suspected child abuse, that um, also trying to do more with a safety checklist when a kid that is exiting foster care does, uh, there's a home care safety list, and also child protective services investigation is going to be required if a family refuses to cooperate. So there are, these are all, as you noted, tied to some uh, pretty horrific instances. I think the, the, the big one in 2019, unfortunately, was the AJ Friends. So, Amanda, why don't you tell us what has changed with respect to the statute of limitations for sexual assault claims? Well, there isn't one anymore, and that's something that really rose in the public eye some years back when former um, Speaker Denny Hastert had made the news and what was going on there. And, of course, he is facing charges, but nothing related to the alleged sexual assault that he perpetrated on some of the young kids who were under his tutelage when he was a wrestling coach in Yorkville. But this is going to be, this is a statute that now completely does away with any of those statutes of limitations, the limits for bringing um, forward allegations of sexual assault, sexual violence. And a lot of that is because at the time, these victims uh, may block it. They may be fearful to come forward. This We're talking about this as the Weinstein trial is beginning, and he faces new a new indictment, I believe, of rape and more sexual assault. So this says no matter what, um, when it it is time for a victim to come forward with these allegations and accusations there can that can progress. Yeah, of course, the um you know the uh, the con the the counter to that obviously is as time goes on it's harder to for the state to make um their case and you know that you get into issues about reliability of memories and witnesses but yeah i think definitely in the wake of you know all of these allegations that we've seen and the bill cosby conviction in pennsylvania uh, pretty good development uh, moving on to minimum wage is increasing here in illinois actually twice in 2020 
Yeah, so the, the new year, minimum wage workers got a bit of a raise up to $9.25, and then another one takes effect come July, the minimum wage rising statewide to $10 an hour. So, again, that, that is different. Chicago itself has a different timeline. Cook County, they are getting a little quicker, but this is part of an effort by Democrats. Again, statewide, there had been some pushback, particularly downstate, where legislators said, hey, our businesses are in a whole different set of circumstances economically than in more populous regions in Chicago and the surrounding areas. But that was an argument that did not sit with Governor J.B. Pritzker, who earlier had signed really right away when he um, came into the governor's office, pretty quickly there, signed this minimum wage law that actually includes a whole bunch of ramp-ups, taking it to $15 an hour minimum wage come 2025. So when I when I really get that jacket, when we've talked, you know, 10 times <laughs> doing our new laws for the New Year segment, we can uh, cover minimum wage there yet again. <laughs> So, Amanda, the last law we're going to talk about is actually one of a number of laws um, that really target trying to make our roads safer. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the law relating to watching streaming videos while driving? If anybody was doing this, shame, shame, shame. I'm waving my finger at you. Hopefully you're listening to this, um, and that's fine. You, you can't see me shaking my finger at you if you're doing that. Don't do it. Now that is officially illegal. Um, I, legislators have said, you know, there would probably have been some room for uh, there to be a distracted driving argument, even without this. But this really secures down and says that, no, you can't watch Netflix or YouTube or any other form of video if you are driving for pretty obvious reasons there that it is super unsafe. But as you noted, that is one of really a variety of laws that are meant to make the roads safer, particularly after we saw really sad cases of state troopers and police officers being injured or killed at alarmingly high rates. And so other new laws include increasing the penalties for not getting, um, you know, not stopping if there is a school bus, for not getting out of the way if there's an emergency vehicle that is over on the side of the road. You need to try and slow down at the very least, be conscious of it, and if possible, change lanes and create some distance between that to try and help whoever emergency workers are in those situations. If there's an abandoned vehicle or, you know, an emergency situation on the side of the road, be able to work with that without being facing an emergency themselves. And Really, a lot of these new laws, I'd say um, this year, 250, as I noted, new ones statewide. The biggie, you know, everybody talks about marijuana, but some of the other biggies really do hit you in the pocketbook, be it that rideshare tax, the parking meter increases that we talked about. And if you're driving, you also are going to be paying another $50 starting in the new year for that annual vehicle registration fee, and that's to pay for infrastructure. So in general, a lot of things that are affecting those who use Illinois roads, and hopefully some of these laws will make the roads at least a little bit safer for everyone. Amanda, we were hoping to close with some wacky Illinois laws. There don't seem to be any new ones this year, but as a reminder to you and our listeners, a couple things to remember. If you're in just planes, uh, wheelbarrows with for sale signs cannot be chained to trees. Mm. Wow. In Decatur, you can't drive a car without a steering wheel. And finally... <laughs> how, would that, how would that work anyway? I don't know. Maybe Check. we should ask David. You and, know, he's from Decatur. Right. And this is, finally, this is very relevant to Sam here. It's against the law to urinate on a street sign in normal. So remember all those... <laughs> Illinois laws that have not no, changed when in 2020. I urinate, I go to Bloomington. I don't think there you go. No. <laughs> On the street side. And they're totally fine. Street side. I don't know. I don't know how to pivot from that. I don't know how to pivot from that one. Let's just say goodbye right. to one of our favorite guests, Amanda <laughs> Vinicky. This is the legal face-off. We gotta try it. That's right. Get Un- out of these arguments. Unbelievable. You can watch around Chicago tonight at WTTW TV. The great Amanda Vinicky. Happy 2020, and we'll do it again soon, hopefully. Happy 2020 back to you. Follow all those laws, guys. 
We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. You can like us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and always search Legal Faceoff wherever you consume your podcasts and rate, review, listen to the show. The newest topic involves marriage story and how that depicts family law. And to talk more about this, a senior partner at Schiller, DeCanto, and Fleck, Karen Pinkert-Lieb joining us now on Legal Faceoff. Hi, Karen. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Karen, what a great movie. I watched it over the holidays, getting a lot of buzz. Didn't win, I think, yesterday at the Golden Globes, but certainly will get a lot of Oscar uh, nominations for all of the principals. Uh, first of all, I assume you've seen the movie already, right? I have. Yeah. I it's, have. It's the Super Bowl for you guys. You gotta. It is. It's like mandatory viewing, <laughs> I So, you know, watching it for me, um, you know, I think the overall story was great, but I was really fascinated by the attorneys in the film. You know, being an attorney myself, obviously, I'm always interested when lawyers are shown on film, but I almost wish there was more time devoted to the attorneys. I almost wish they do a spinoff just showing these attorneys in action. But uh, the film depicts the divorce lawyers played by Alan Alda, uh, Ray Liotta, and Laura Dern connecting with their clients by explaining that they themselves went through troubling relationships. For example, Laura Dern's character said that she left a relationship with an abusive boyfriend the first time she meets her client, played by Scarlett Johansson. Uh, Then we see Alan Alda's character, who is the first attorney hired by Adam Driver. He gives him a hug, and he says that he's now on his fourth marriage. So... The question to you as an experienced divorce lawyer yourself is, is it more important for a divorce lawyer to share their personal histories with their clients than other lawyers? So I would say not necessarily any more that, you know, we're professionals. So any more than a therapist would be required to share personal details of their history with a patient, um, it, it would be the same, a similar situation. So you know, we're professional advisors, and the clients don't necessarily want to pay us to hear about, you know, what has gone on in our lives. They're here to convey information to us and to receive advice. I think they also like, don't want to pay you to tell jokes, right? As uh, They also a, do a, not want to pay a, us to tell jokes, it, it, and I will never tell another <laughs> joke again after seeing that movie. Yeah, that was a great, um, there's a great scene in the movie, Sam, where, uh, you know, Alan Alda is charging $450 an hour, which is half of what really... Ray Liotta's charging, and he starts to tell this long, meandering joke, and Adam Driver says, by the way, am I paying for this joke? <laughs> pretty pretty, pretty funny scene, but you were, say- yeah. you, you were saying... That rang true. I mean, that absolutely rang true to me. I will tell you there were certain poignant moments where, I, where the, the attorney, the divorce attorney particularly, was probably self-reflective because you spend a lot of time with your client, so there could be a time where there's you know a joke told, and I'll be more circumspect <laughs> about that next time. But I think that what Birnbach was trying to show, particularly with Alan Alda character, was that the Alan Alda character was empathetic and understood Adam Driver's pains and fears because he had been through it. So I think that that, but it's not necessary for an attorney to have been through it or convey that they've been through it to demonstrate that they have that empathy for what the client is going through. Um, and in terms of the Laura Dern character, I think that, in from my perspective, was to show that she had her about the she told the Scarlett Johansson character about her abusive boyfriend. I think that was to set the stage that she had a personal agenda from the very beginning. But a good divorce attorney and most divorce attorneys will not have a personal agenda when they go in to represent a client. They're going to be too busy solving the client's problems to have time to promote their own agenda. So I think that, you know, that was the stereotypical of what Bombeck was trying to show, but it's not realistic. So, Karen, this movie shows some other tactics that don't particularly portray divorce lawyers in the best light. Laura Dern's character takes pride in a 45-55 split, for example, just so that her opponent couldn't say that he got 50-50. Ray Liotta's character launches a full-scale attack on Scarlett Johansson's character and is a blustery attack dog. 
Obviously, these are characters that were exaggerated for dramatic effect, but why don't you talk to us about how those qualities may be more important in family law than in other legal practice areas? So it's such an interesting question. I would say that that attack dog personality is less effective in a family law situation as compared to other areas of law. And the reason I say that is because when you have a family law situation, these parties are going to have to see each other, generally after the case is over, in general. They could have children together. They will have co-parenting, weddings, and christenings. And we encourage and want the parties to walk away having a good relationship, which will facilitate their ability to be better co-parents going forward. So to have that you know, be as polarizing as you saw the Lauren, uh, yeah, the Lauren Dern character being in the Ray Liotta would not be effective or welcome for a family that's undergoing a divorce. Now, that being said, you know, we are attorneys and we have an ethical obligation to ethically, to zealously advocate on behalf of our clients. So by zealously advocating, you're going to emphasize the strengths of your case and the weaknesses of the other party's case to tell the best narrative you can. But that doesn't mean, you know, to make it as personal and attacking as those two attorneys did. Yeah, I heard one prominent divorce lawyer say that theirs is the only profession where people come to their office for a consultation and say as an opening sentence, I heard you're an aggressive, ruthless pit bull and a son of a bitch, and they mean it as a compliment. Um, let's turn your attention uh, to some of the other parts of the movie and tell us how accurate they were. The portrayal of some of the steps in the litigation process, like the mediation we see early on with uh, Robert Smigel's character to the settlement conference between Laura Dern and Alan Alda, um, and then on to the court appearance. How accurate does the film depict some of those steps? Well, the steps in themselves are accurate in terms of mediation, settlement conferences, and then if you're unable to resolve trial or litigation. But... The characterization or the depiction of each of those steps was very inaccurate from my experience. Um, starting with the mediation, which I think is almost how they open the movie, mm-hmm. a mediator is that in that scene, the mediator, and I use that term in quotes, was having the parties write story, write a letter to each other about what they loved about each other. That would never happen in mediation, and that's more of a marriage counseling scenario. In a mediation, it's a facilitated negotiation. Generally, the attorneys are present, and the only time that they would engage or participate in such an exercise is potentially to do joint goals as to what are their goals for the mediation so that they can get stay focused on the big picture. But it would be very issue-specific, and it would not have to do with their feelings for one another. That touchy-feely is really not, you know, appropriate or 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 something that's done pursuant to mediation. Um, in, ser- in terms of the settlement conference, generally you're not going to have a settlement conference if you have a mediation because the mediation is the facilitated negotiation, but some parties choose not to do a mediation, so they'll have a settlement for whatever reason. They'll do a settlement conference instead. Um, again, very issue-focused and less personal, personality-focused. You, in Illinois, at least, you have to do a mediation if you're going to present a child-related case to the court. So before you get to a litigation scenario, the parties are required to participate in mediation. That's Karen Pinkert-Lieb, senior partner, Schiller, DeCanto, and Fleck, talking about marriage and family law. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you so much for your time. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. 
Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka, and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. First episode of 2020, Rich, Tina, Sam, thanks to Ben Anderson per usual, and joining us in the studio first from WGN Radio, you know him, you love him, his name is Dane Neal. Dane, welcome. Good to be here, good to be the here. The esteemed Dane Neal. That's Sam's new word of the day. He, I said it he used it six That's times nice. for the I'm going to update guess. the resume. Thank you, Rich. And also, uh, apparently... Somebody that you mentor, Joe Esses, who's a law student at Absolutely. Northern Illinois University. He's an esteemed University. law student. Esteemed. You guys want to just do the rest of the show. That's fine. I'll, <laughs> I'll go home, I promise. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Long-time listener, first-time guest. There how you go. He, first Long-time first-time. How is he as a mentor? And you're not under oath or anything. Don't worry. Oh, he's absolutely great. Could not ask anything more. Are you still looking for a job? No, kidding. <laughs> I am. <laughs> there we go. Seven topics, a full touchdown, and we start with the uh, the killings in Soleimani, if they're legal or not. Uh, I don't know, so I ask you, Rich Lenkoff. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't think any of us in this room are experts in this area, but I guess the legal uh, quandary that uh, is being debated right now is whether Trump acted within his Article 2 powers that affords the president great latitude in defending the United States from, you know, attacks foreign and domestic, or is this an illegal act because he did not go to Congress first? The War Powers Act says that you do have to go to Congress uh, in order to enact war. I think the last time um, officially was World War II. The other um, issue is whether Trump will violate the Geneva Conventions if he attacks, as he threatened to on tweet on Twitter, uh, these 52 sites. Or he said he'll launch 52 attacks, some of which will be on historical and cultural sites, which does violate the Geneva Conventions if he does it. So lots to discuss. Um, again, I don't think any of us in this room know the answer, nor do most legal scholars know whether what Trump did um, you know, a few days ago in killing this terrorist was lawful, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, Tina? Well, I think, first of all, a lot of people are sort of scratching their heads because the imminency of the threat, I don't think, has really come to light. And I don't think that President Trump has explained it. Um, you know, and I think also a lot of folks, and I agree with this notion that uh, they that we believe that there was maybe not as much thought as there could have perhaps no. been about With President what, Trump about not what thinking the potential. Yeah, right. Exactly. So um, you know, I, I I find this all very concerning, especially the whole notion. He also said that he thinks that we would be entitled to you know, bomb or otherwise destroy such sites, notwithstanding the Geneva Convention, because what they are doing and have done is much worse than that. So. Yeah, and the idea, obviously, is you want a system of checks and balances, and the immediacy that you mentioned, listen, everyone wants the president as the commander-in-chief to have the ability to defend the nation when there's an imminent threat, right? And the whole question that you raised, Tina, um, is whether this terrorist, who by some accounts was going just, you know, was, was following a usual Monday in the, in the Middle East, that's the words that one expert used, was engaged in an imminent threat or whether this was a proactive attack on someone who, you know, wasn't doing something immediately. Um, you know, Joe, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I would You're be- a constitutional scholar there in your first year at Northern, yeah, right? A little bit. I take it next semester, but I've done, I've done yeah. some research on the topic. So there's really been three different cases where a president is – sort of abused the War Power Act and um, a member of Congress has filed this lawsuit against Mm -hmm. them. So the first one was like Reagan uh, in 1981, where he deployed military personnel to El Salvador uh, without congressional support. 
uh, Clinton in 1991 and then Obama in 2011. All three, neither of them were, uh, like, all of them were dismissed. And the president's won in the cases. I don't think anything will be different here, even though he did violate um, an executive order as well as the no assassinations. Yeah, I mean, generally the system is set up so that one person, one individual, the president, has great latitude and great power in launching these kind of attacks. So, Dane, what are your thoughts on this? Should he, should the president have to go to Congress first in, in these circumstances? Certainly Trump has shown, you know, no deference to Congress, especially no. this current Congress, in acting for, you know, in, in his prior actions. Well, you mentioned the latitude, and it goes all the way from the top for the president to the average person. If you feel that you're threatened, you're in imminent danger, you have the ability to defend yourself, and, and you can use, you know, you could kill someone if you, if you had to. But you have to, I think, demonstrate that that's you know actually happening. I think the difference with this guy is, and I don't know, and on the legal side, Rich, maybe you can kind of share that, is we have to kind of get a definition of, of who he was mm-hmm. and who he was in that capacity, because he's quite a few different things. You know, he's either the second most important person in the government, he's either a general, he's an enemy combatant, or he's the leader of a group that's identified on that terror watch list. And if you can get everybody to agree, okay, he's this guy, you know, in some situations, he's he's open. You know, it's open season. I mean, right. some he should be protected. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A member of the Defense Department said that uh, Soleimani was the chief engineer of the world's most active state sponsor of terrorism. So that was their defense to the killing. But they still probably should have um, told Congress of it beforehand. Topic number two. I'll just read the title here. How did the Nissan X boss flee from Japan? I'm yeah, intrigued. I mean, really fascinating story. Um, basically, this guy escaped, right? So the leader of Nissan, the CEO, ex-CEO, has been uh, either in jail or under house arrest in Japan in Osaka now for two years. He was arrested two years ago for a variety of um, charges, including you know using uh, expense accounts for personal gain, underreporting his income to the tune of $85 million. Well, he was in jail for a bit, and then he was at his home. Um, and complaining forever in the media about how slow and inefficient and unfair the Japanese legal system is. By most accounts, the, the Japanese legal system is, in fact, different. It is much slower. Um, and they do that purposely to try to basically sweat out defendants so they admit to their crimes. But Carlos Goen um, decided that he'd had enough and jumped on a plane a private plane, and stopped in Turkey and then went to his home country of Beirut and is going to give a press conference this week explaining what happened and, again, justified his actions by saying, I wasn't getting a fair shake um, in prison in Japan. He allegedly did so by hiding in either a musical instrument or a box that was holding musical instruments and taken out by band members in the middle of the night and jumped on this plane. Um, Interpol has uh, announced that they're, you know, uh, they've issued an arrest warrant. But the most interesting part and not unexpected is that there is no extradition treaty between Japan and Lebanon. So good luck going to get them. But, you know, I guarantee you there's a bunch of... uh, defendants at the Cook County Criminal Courts building here on 25th in California who similarly feel that they're getting a fair shake, uh, an unfair shake by the system. But guess what? They don't have private planes and, you know, secret uh, trap Secret doors. bands Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and instruments to hide yeah, in. Pretty amazing story. It, it, it is. Um, I just was left scratching my head. Um, it's um, it's remarkable to me. I don't think this story is over by any stretch. But um, clearly this guy and you know, everything that I've seen has indicated that many months of preparation went into this. Um, you know, I feel like I felt like I was watching one of the Oceans movies, yeah. like Oceans 11 or 8 or, you know. <laughs> Dane, certainly an example of someone with money and, and power uh, evading a legal system. doesn't really matter if you feel it's unfair. Most people think they're being treated unfairly in the legal system. Well, right? it's all relative, too. And, and you look at what he gave up. I think it's $16 million for the bond that he put up, which is, you know, nothing compared to either what he stole or, or his salary or anything. Plus, this guy has access to the private jet. So they make it out to, yeah, it's something out of Ocean's Eleven is some kind of amazing, you know, synchronized heist. But really, having worked in and around the private jet uh, world, and you could do anything. I I don't think that they don't even check your ID half the time. You have to sign in. You can put whatever you want on there. Very smart. It should have been obvious, I think, to who's ever supposed to contain him that this right. is a guy who could just leave. Yeah, and he went from uh, Japan to Istanbul, and then Turkey actually arrested the seven aviation workers who were. Um, associated with the plane, and they said they had no idea he was on the plane whatsoever. So it was a great paramilitary 
band that he hired for his birthday. And there was a couple there was a couple government officials like on board. It, specifically, one of them was international, I think, kidnapping victims was like mm-hmm. his specialty. So they were right there. So it was kind of cool the way he did it. The house arrest system in Japan, apparently not that strong. <laughs> yeah, insane. He was also held for 53 days before he was even indicted for yeah. a crime. So that's... That's insane. No, 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 no concept of uh, habeas corpus so much in in Japan. And now nope. I know where to go if I have to flee. Just go <laughs> and, to Japan. And, and you know what to hide in, right? I know what to hide in. Yes, <laughs> I know what to hide in. Topic three, Tina involves the affluenza teen who uh, apparently was arrested again. This time for violating probation. Yeah, so our listeners will remember that the affluenza teen first hit the news back in 2013. Um, Ethan Couch uh, had lost control of his family's pickup truck back in 2013 after he and his friends had played beer pong. And then they drank beer that they had stolen from a Walmart. Um, It's very tragic. He veered into a crowd of people that was helping a disabled or uh, disabled uh, vehicle on the side of the road. And he ended up killing the actual motorist of the vehicle, um, as well as a youth minister and a mother and daughter who were on the scene. Um, He was originally sentenced to 10 years of probation, um, but he was later jailed after he went to a party where alcohol was served. And then he fled Mexico with his mother. What a family. But in any event, um, he got out of jail in 2018 after serving nearly a two-year sentence. So last week, he hit the press again um, when he was booked into a jail in Fort Worth. He tested positive for THC, which we all know is the psychoactive compound in marijuana. So um, what I find remarkable, there are a few things I find remarkable about this story. The whole notion, back then I, I was shocked by this and it still shocks me, the whole notion that one can use the um, defense of affluenza uh, for what this, what this guy did. Um, it's irresponsibility caused by family wealth. I, uh, I, I find that very crazy. But then again, look at his mother who helped him escape to Mexico and has been having her own dealings with the law as well. So, yeah, spent no time in jail for killing four people. Uh, Ten years of probation. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there was the video of him uh, playing beer pong right afterwards and then, you know, took off to Puerto Vallarta, dyed his hair um, and now arrested again for THC. Um yeah, this affluenza uh, defense is just complete junk. You know, we do see uh, lots of junk science in the legal field and lots. Of, I mean, basically, you know, you can hire an expert to say anything. Um, it doesn't really. I mean, there are standards in court that you have to meet. But this is an example of just, you know, just junk. Have you ever seen a defense on the other side? Like maybe the poverty flu, yeah. of like opposite affluenza? Right. Not so much. No. You think that he got some consideration because of his age early on, but the other part, I mean, you look at the ignorance of the law is no excuse, and his whole thing is that he's wealthy and kind of oblivious, right, to to the fact. And you can see maybe it happened in one or two times, but it seems like he keeps getting, like, breaks the whole way down. Yeah, I saw a press conference with the one of the marshals, and he said that, you know, there are just some kind of defendants who you can't rehabilitate. They're just done, right? And this is, this is that kind of guy, so... Hopefully he'll go to actual jail this time. And and he'll stay there for a while? Go away. Topic number four involves some food. So Dane Neal, noted foodie, will enjoy this one. The Michelin star lawsuit where Mark Vayred has lost a case against the Michelin guide. And they want to take him from his third Michelin star. They want to strip it from him, right? That was the Englishiest pronunciation of his name in, <laughs> in history. As someone who grew He's up not as esteemed enough. I don't know French, how to yeah. say his name. Mark Vayred. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> Come on, try it again. <laughs> okay. Put a little, little emphasis in. Scream. <laughs> so Veyrat is a uh, famous chef. Um, he had three stars, a coveted third star from the Michelin Guide, which is, you know, of course, the highest achievement you can attain as a chef. Um, he had one of the stars removed by the guide in January, um, because he allegedly, they claim he used the wrong cheese in his French souffle. They allege that he used English cheddar cheese instead of French cheeses, including Beaufort cheese. And 
Reb Lorchon. There we go. <laughs> I was going to say, at least they didn't accuse him of using Velveeta, right? That's right. Well, they might as well have English cheddar cheese. You can imagine using that at a French souffle has got to be terrible. So they stripped him of a star. And now he, even though he said he didn't care, he didn't really need the stars. And actually, revenue was up at his restaurant 7%. He's now suing um, Michelin saying he wants his star back. And he's saying that they didn't know what they were doing. They're not qualified to, you know opine on his skills so kind what's of the name of this restaurant rich la maison des bois yeah. oh, i want to hear rich say it. la maison des bois <laughs> <laughs> it's so much anger so like, <laughs> why, are you, why are you screaming he sounds like an angry bienvenue à la maison des bois i said Veyrat. he said mark Veyrat. he's from lincoln nebraska mark Veyrat. give me a sausage corn huskers he's a uh, where, where were we? Uh, guys, what do you think? Good use of the legal system to try to get the star back? Like he said, uh, he didn't care. Why is he suing? Well, yeah, I don't I, What's the damage? Exactly. What, what is the, the damage? I mean, as, I don't think he meets our the legal L, standard. As our 1L will know, what are the elements of a cause of action? One of them. Damages. That's exactly true. Wow. And, he, and he was suing for $1 nominal damages. Um, he said it was. Just to prove a point. Yeah, he said the lawsuit was really for his staff. He said like they felt it as a wound to them. <laughs> So I don't understand how that works. Dan, you're a resident foodie. You're, wow. you're, you're, well, you're, you're this is pretty expert easy. on all this stuff. This is pretty easy to quantify because you can go, the, for the listeners out there that may be not that familiar, a handful of years ago, the, the Michelin Guide came to Chicago. And so you'll see those kind of uh, things proudly displayed at uh, a bunch of restaurants here, one of the great food towns in America. But it is super valuable. If, you get, if you're in that guide and you get the, those stars, the one, two, and maybe the three, wow, um, it means money. I mean, it really does impact your your restaurant financially oh, yeah. so he said here he just wants to do it for just the principal right? right but i think even on principle and from the legal perspective i don't think that if i think if the if the judge or the jury are up to speed with everything and what it means is you don't want to set a precedent like that because that happens all the time you know where they just arbitrarily stop in a couple times they'll assess your restaurant you know where it's at where it should be and it's just like a yelp review kind of th- i mean it's different and obviously there's criteria but it's arbitrary and i don't think if you have somebody being able to prove a case that somehow it should be either reassessed or they should get it back, I don't know where it's, it stops. It opened, yeah, it's yeah. a can of worms. There was another story recently, a couple of years ago. I read the great book, but that French chef who killed himself because he lost uh, his star. It's a really, really interesting book. And yeah, it shows how important these stars are. But it's a waste of judicial resources. I mean, you know, I understand proving a point, but you're wasting resources in the process. Maybe you should sue in uh, food court. Yeah. Yeah, should you start your <laughs> Maybe argument Judge by... Wapner will come in uh, and preside over that court. You have a dispute. Don't take him to court. You ta- to don't name. take the law into your own hands. You take him to court. The food court. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Food that could court. happen. Le food court. Uh, the- not to name names, but do you have any uh, crazy food stories from any restaurants or anything? You have a bad experience you could share? No? Uh, I wouldn't like necessarily share a bad experience, but um, but it is, it's the kind of thing that really, and it happens all the time, where you, and you have people say, it's okay, we're going to be fine, we're going to lose uh, our star or gain one, but it's it's huge. It's huge for them. Yep. I remember when I first started here, they, they had a show called Flavor HD. I was producing Flavor HD filling in one show. And mm. Dane and Hannah, I think you left me like three pounds of brisket and said, here you go. Thank you. <laughs> go like, that was my treat for producing the show that day. Oh, yeah, just one of the kind of the side effects, the, the, kind of the perks, right? It was, it was amazing. It was probably the, best, uh, probably the best producing shift I ever had. All right, topic number five, Tina. Liam Hemsworth and Rebel Wilson, they're in trouble. Yes, double trouble for Liam Hemsworth and Rebel Wilson, uh, who are the Isn't It Romantic co-stars. So they ended up getting sued on the same day last month. Um, Liam Hemsworth got sued by Splash News in California federal court for using a behind-the-scenes photo of him on the film set back in 2018. He had posted it on his Instagram feed and then posted it again last year in June um, when he was trying to promote the film and encourage fans to vote for it in the Teen Choice Awards. Um, So same day, Rebel Wilson also got sued for using a photo of her um, that was from the set of The Hustle uh, back in 2018 as well. The arguments are the same in both cases. These are are, uh, pictures that were owned by 
by two publications and there are um, different fees and licensing arrangements in place for them. They are accused of intentional infringement um, where where $150,000 is at stake for each unauthorized use. Um, as well as further damages for removing the watermark. So this is yet another case where people do things on social media that actually end up having unintended consequences. But um, the law is pretty clear on this type of thing. And you know this, Tina, because uh, this is your area. But, I mean, the use of photos has just taken off in the last few years, the litigation surrounding it and people's efforts to protect them. It used to be where, you know, you would use a photo, you would see it, you would, you know, no big deal. Now you see lawsuits like this all the time. Well, yeah, and, and you see it a lot with stars because I think sometimes they don't recognize that. I, I think there's this belief that if they're in them, mm-hmm. they can use them. Um, but there's also this whole notion of who owns the photo, who's got rights to it, and what are the arrangements that the owners of the of the photos have with licensing organizations and, and third-party entities that want to publish them. So how's the intellectual property courses at uh, NIU first year? Not... I'm taking it next semester yeah. <laughs> again. Sorry, um, I'm going to have it with Professor Fox, I believe. Uh, but so based on esteemed, esteemed Professor Fox. Uh, so I personally believe that agencies are really making these lawsuits more common because uh, they're really trying to shake down celebrities because their revenues are down because social media has made everyone a photographer rather than mm-hmm. just paparazzi. Um, so in order to make the revenue that they once were making, these lawsuits are how they see they're going to make up that money. I I had a question, like on the legal side for you guys is because everybody can disseminate and take quality photos now. Is it kind of along the same lines as it was with music where, you know, with Napster and file sharing and everything where it just, it just made it more difficult to kind of corral it all and, uh, and monetize it and, and kind of protect your stuff. I mean, it's maybe getting to the point where it's just all going to be, you know, kind of, unless it's in a studio, right? If it's public. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's a really good question. I, I think it, it sort of depends on the circumstances here. We had, we had a couple of things. Um, they were clearly, these are photos that were clearly not owned by the celebrities that were depicted in them. There was also a concern, I think, because they were behind the scenes photos taken as I believe the, the movie, movies were being made. I think there was a concern whether it was with these photos in particular or just the whole notion of sharing these types of photos. There was a concern about potentially leaking um, you know, details about the movie before the studios oh. are ready to do that. So I think there are several things at play here. Um, but yeah, I think it depends on, on the circumstances. But the music sharing is has, was an interesting phenomenon that I think for, in, in large part has come under, is, is under control a lot more now. So Which Hemsworth brother is a Martini a fan of him or, or, or the other one? Thor. There's three of them. Then oh, there's there the is one a third who, one. Yeah, I'd hate to be the third one because yeah, no one knows. Yeah, the third all the good genes like got used on the it's like Cooper guys. Manning. <laughs> it's exactly. <laughs> it is exactly that yeah. same thing. I like Tina? Liam. Like Liam? Yeah. Not is Liam this guy or this is yeah. Chris? This is Liam. Oh, this is Liam. This is Liam. Chris is Thor. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. What's Sam? the third brother? No. Third, Joe. He's like a he's, Joe he's like a third grade David. elementary school teacher or something. Really? It's, it's exactly the Cooper Manning thing. Exactly. <laughs> a guy devoid of all of the other things that the other guys have. Chicago Tribune had a, a piece by Olivia Malagon. How did I say that? You've got to yell it. Malagon! <laughs> it's like a soccer goal. So she chronicled, and they, they put a picture of Blago in Englewood with the uh, shirt off, headphones on, and the notably very snow-white hair. But he allegedly is appealing to President Trump, and uh, I would love to see that letter. Yeah, I mostly picked this story just to see a shirtless Blago. You want to do the but no one else gets to see it on the radio. We always see it from like the <laughs> breast area up, um, but looks like he's in pretty good shape. Blago, not, not a lot good to do. Like maybe work no. out, neat, right? He does have the old school headphones, though. Apparently, they haven't the uh, Apple iPhone uh, ha- uh, headphones haven't made it to federal prison in Englewood yet. But yeah, he wrote a letter uh, right before the holidays to President Trump, appealing to him. He didn't mention Trump by name, but he talked about how if Lincoln was alive today, the Democrats in Congress would impeach him for various infractions, including. Uh, freeing the slaves. So um, his wife, Patty, retweeted it and uh, mentioned Trump and said that uh, Blago is a noted Lincoln expert, has read many books about Lincoln. And, uh, you know, Blago continues to try to get out of prison. Can't blame the guy. 
you know, his only uh, option left is a pardon by Trump. Trump has talked about it. He has said, Trump has openly said that it's been unfair to his former uh, reality star contestant. But, uh, yeah, I think Blago he should keep con- swinging. I think he should consider getting stuffed into a musical instrument. There you go. <laughs> Good way out of prison, the Gossip me- Method. Yeah, one of the lines in the letter that he wrote, I have it right here, is, I had the unhappy experience of being impeached. So I don't That's know. Right. I like how he considers it unhappy. There's well, no pe- other. People forget that <laughs> Blaga no was, in fact, it. impeached there in Illinois. Yeah. There's yeah. some, I think, rarefied camaraderie there, right? Mm-hmm. No one yeah. understands you like I do, kind <laughs> of right. if, And this is his best shot. You think about this: is that you get impeached, and then the guy who were you on, who was the host of the reality show that you were on, is the president? Is <laughs> like the guy. What that, are the odds, right? Yeah, if it's six months ago, I would say try to write the letter, not to to. Trump, but write it to Kim Jong-un and try to get yourself worked into that that letter of love that seems to make such an impact. Maybe as a P.S., you know, Rod's okay, let him out. And who knows? Maybe Trump will be uh, cellmates with Blago here pretty soon. <laughs> Never know. Trump and Blago cellies. Coming in 2020, Sam. Who's got better hair? That's a good oh, question. Oh, come on. <laughs> Don't make there's me like break. no, there's not even a contest. Don't make me break up my story of when I visited Blago in prison in year one. I don't think, Dane, that and, story? I don't think Dane and Joe have heard that. Really quickly, one of my attorneys was on Blago's uh, defense teams, and about a year into the sentence, told me he wants to go visit Blago in prison in uh, Colorado. And I said, not only could you go, but I'm coming with you. So we went out and we visited Blago in uh, in prison. And the biggest question, of course, everyone had was, what was his hair like? Because he dyed it. Yeah, he dyed it for a, a while. Now well, he dyed it twice a week for no many longer years. Die, but how do you dye your hair that. twice a week? He died. He was a freak. Yeah, in real life, but then in prison, of course, they wouldn't give get him hair dye. So, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, Trump has more famous hair, I think. So the jail experience—that's interesting. It was crazy. Not a lot of people. It was incredible. Was it, it was, like out of? It was you know, exactly like you see, It was exactly like you see in a movie. It was a stark. You know, room, and he came in, and we were there alone on the phones. Or do you guys have the? Oh, you playing cards? It, it was it was in person. Wow! You know? I did uh, give him something I had smuggled in, and part of my body, and the rest, <laughs> in the the prison, rest is prison wallet, penal history. But <laughs> we have a Facebook live comment. Ivan O'Connor says, "Free Blago." With there you three go! Exclamation point! <laughs> wow! He's nice. got what like uh, six years left, I think. Yep. Trump's looking into it. He tweeted in like August. August 8th of 2019 that his team is continuing to review the matter. So, well, he got, but he's that, that was sort of like a fallback on his prior position where he seemed to be a lot more interested in freeing Blago. Yeah. At least get him some AirPods. Let's get rid of these 1978 Walkman <laughs> headphones. Last topic. Seven of seven here on the Legal Grab Bag, Legal Face Off, as we wrap it up. Alec Baldwin had a fight in a parking lawsuit, or in a parking lot, and now there's a parking space fight. Lawsuit. Mm. Yes. So folks will remember that a little bit over a year ago, Alec Baldwin got into it with a gentleman named Wojciech Sheshkowski over a Manhattan parking space that apparently Alec Baldwin's wife had been saving. Um, At at the end of the day, Ilaria. Huh? Ilaria. Ilaria. So anyway. So um, they get into it. Uh, Wojciech accuses Alec of punching him in the jaw. Baldwin gets arrested. The Manhattan DA's office charges him with third-degree attempted assault and second-degree harassment. He ends up pleading guilty to the latter, and he participates in an anger management program, gets this great spot on Saturday Night Live. And uh, then he gets sued by Wojciech, who sues him for assault, battery, and slander per se. So it's this third um, count of the complaint uh, that was in the news at the end of December, he was able to beat the slander claim. Um, it's interesting because this sort of reminds me of a story that we did earlier in the grab bag. Um, he, Alec Baldwin had, had claimed that this guy was trying to take a relatively minor altercation and turn it into a multimedia lottery um, ticket. And so the issue here was, was it a serious crime that Alec Baldwin... Um, accused this guy of. He had said, and the whole statement that was under consideration here was, um, he had said that uh, this guy, he thought he was good, that this guy was going to run over his wife with the car when he was stealing his parking spot. And it was that comment that this guy sued Alec Baldwin over for slander. 
So I think it's a little crazy. I mean, usually you have to talk about something very serious like murder, rape, um, that sort of thing before you start talking about slander. So Let that's Alec why I was Baldwin, dismissed. Let him do what he wants. He can do no wrong in my eyes. Well, after <laughs> that incredible in, run on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> forget that. The best Rock, 10 dude. minutes in movie history. Put that coffee down, right? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> one of my top three or four movies of all time. He was great in that, but I still think he's better on Saturday Night Live. No, Joe, as my mentee, watch Glengarry Glenn Ross like a yeah. hundred times. Okay. It teaches you everything you need to know, not about not just about selling, you know, bullshit real estate in Florida, but about everything. <laughs> All right. Sounds Coffee good. I'll, I'll put it on my to do list. Dane? In a, a city that Defend has Baldwin here. That well. has dibs. Right. That's right. Um, you know, I think you could set a precedent that you can save a spot. Right. And that's a legitimate thing that you should be able to to go ahead and uh, and do. But I, I think that with all the perks and privileges that go along with with being a celebrity, I think that you have it's a double edged sword and you're a target, especially Alec Baldwin. He's like the kind of guy, you know, that you could go and anger, you know, and then he goes Hulk. And, and then, of course, you're going to put in a frivolous lawsuit and maybe make a couple bucks. And so I see him being able to make a case that he's a target. This is happened uh before in the in the past i i mean i'll defend him i think that there's a, a higher standard i mean what do you think for celebrities yeah the, of course. people are looking to kind of gouge him whether it's a you know it's the the sports hero with the with the baby or whether it's with uh you know just kind of to kind of go to provoke them i think they're only in wish you could be alec baldwin's lawyer though amount of work that guy has <laughs> just from baldwin well, for years alone. yeah for, for for years all right let's do it famous our favorite uh alec baldwin movie can't say the movie I just said, Tina. Come on. Oh God, I I'm having a brain cramp. Mm-hmm. The one, the marrying man. Would you do like no, that one? With, no, no, uh, no, no. Basinger? Tim Burton movie. Oh, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Sure. Love early, it. Early Baldwin. Love it. Joe, favorite Baldwin movie? I would say The Departed. The part, it's amazing. It's a small role in that, but amazing. Well, my favorite line that he has in that movie is, you know, the world needs more bartenders. When, uh, he was in Hunt when, for Red October, Mark, right? Yeah, Hunt for Red October. That's great. what Ben just said. So, Ben, you need a new answer. Come on, Ben. There's like, he's done every movie. Uh, Sam? I was going to say, I liked him as General Doolittle in uh, Pearl Harbor. Yeah. yeah. But he was good in that. Pretty good. You yeah. disagree? No, he's great. Yeah. Jimmy Doolittle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a Glengarry Glen Ross guy, but I love... Uh, How about favorite Baldwin brother? There's so many to choose from. Billy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of Danny Baldwin from uh, Homicide. You guys remember the show Homicide? Yeah, yeah. Homicide Life show. on the Streets. Great, great show from the early 90s. David Milch and... Uh, yeah, excellent. Say goodbye to Facebook Live, Rich. Goodbye. I think that does it. Anything else we need to get to here? I think we're done. Uh, Dane, give us our fa- your favorite, uh, what, best restaurant, best new restaurant in Chicago, best new dish. What do, what do you want to tell us as the, uh, um, any, anything new we should be checking be, out? So this this encompasses, this is definitely a place that you should go and you should go often, is the new timeout market in Fulton. There are some of the best chefs that you would uh, love to see, some great restaurants out there as well, and it's all under one roof and built in an entertainment factor. So timeout market, awesome. go there. And Joe, favorite restaurant in DeKalb to eat? <laughs> Fatties! Fatties is a good one. They got chilies Tom, out there. Tom, Tom chilies, and Jerry's. Chilies is always good. You got um, Lucalo's. You say chilies? Yeah, chilies uh, is great. Lucalo's still out there? I have no idea. Tom and Jerry's? Ruby Tuesdays? <laughs> now, when I went awesome. to school in DeKalb, there was none of these chains that you speak of, oh, these yeah. Applebee's and things. There was like three restaurants. Lucalo's, Tom and Jerry's, and then... Uh, Fatties. Fatties, yeah. Were there any French restaurants? There was no... no <laughs> not at all. There was no La Maison des Bois. Yeah. And that does it for the legal face-off in 2020, the first episode. Au Thanks to Joe. Thanks to Dane for coming in. Thanks to Ben. Merci beaucoup. And we will talk to you next time. Au revoir. Gracias. On Legal Face-Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...